Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to another amazing day, amazing Friday, here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Hopefully, you're looking forward to the weekend. I know I certainly am looking to take a little bit of time off. But before we send you off, you're here to listen to the number one source you can come to for that political news and commentary from a constitutional and conservative perspective, focusing specifically on Kentucky issues. As a reminder, you can reach out to the show by emailing info at theandrewshow.com. If you miss a show, want to learn more about us, where to listen, where to follow, just visit theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's theandrewshow.com. And don't be forgetting now to go ahead and make sure you're sharing this with others. If you're listening online, like, comment, share, subscribe. If you're listening on the radio, make sure you're telling others to tune in. But without further ado, Let's dig into it. So Kentucky was recently ranked as one of the worst places to raise a child, raise a family. I actually ranked eighth in the nation. And this is from WHAS, which is citing a review by selected select software reviews. Who is select software? Well, you guessed it. It's a company that specializes in reviewing software. So what does a company who reviews software know about what it takes wise as far as a family, where to pick? What kind of things do they think are important to raising a family? Well, uh, they decided to survey each state based upon child care affordability, public school rankings, uh, maternity leave, maternity leave duration, and current cost of living. So where does Kentucky underperform at? Well, it's really only two categories. They say since Kentucky doesn't have a mandatory uh, paternity leave, that that somehow immediately drops us heavily in the rankings. Then, of course, as well, our schools rank consistently pretty low in the nation, and therefore uh, we get hurt pretty heavily as well in the schooling category. And while I agree that our schools are absolutely awful, you know, one of the things that Kentucky doesn't have that many other school districts do have is school choice. Once again, House Bill 208, something to be calling on. But I do agree. It is important for us to have an educational system that you can send your children to where they can learn uh, about the ABCs and how to do math without indoctrinating them or caring about this, this concepts, this mental health concepts we have now about, well, we got to make sure they belong and make sure they feel in the place. I don't know about you, but I don't remember growing up ever being concerned about whether or not I felt like I belonged at school. And I'm sure most of you growing up, your school didn't really care about how well you belonged, just as well as you behaved and knew uh, your ABCs, your one, two, threes, your math, your reading, everything else, science, they were concerned about teaching you, but now they concern themselves with a whole lot of other aspects, which is why school's bad at it. They're trying to do a whole lot of things, mental health, feeding, all kinds of other issues. It seems education keeps coming last and last. However, Going back to Kentucky's uh, uh, maternity leave being such a big issue, what's interesting is they cite cost of living as a place where Kentucky excels. We're one of the lowest, actually, in the nation, but perhaps ignore the reasons why Kentucky's cost of living can be kept so low and how much that actually is more important than, let's say, offering uh, mandatory maternity leave. Now, mandatory maternity leave hurts 
everyone when this uh, becomes a thing. I know it's a common leftist talking point. It's nice. It's safe. It's cuddly. It's something that they feel warm to. You you say anything about they're like, oh, how dare you hate mothers? You conservatives. You're just pro-birth. You hate moms. Why don't you want the government to take care of moms? And of course, ignoring the fact that we conservatives don't believe government's here to solve all your problems, but no use trying to argue with a bunch of individuals that would never begin to understand your governmental philosophy in the first place. But first, it, it hurts consumers because, well, now you will experience cost increase in products in order to offset the cost of these maternity leaves. I mean, you literally are paying for someone to provide no value to the company at all. Now, am I saying companies should never offer maternity leave? No, of course not. It depends upon the employer, the benefits they have to offer in order to attract in staff. And if they decide on their own free will, that's something important to them and they do it great. But for the government to require every business to offer, I mean, look at your small mom and pop shops. Let's say they've got maybe five employees, three or four employees. I mean, look at something as simple as a small mom and pop, uh, like a CPA. Recently, I've, I've been contacting a new CPA. And the owner of the accounting agency is also the CPA. And there's really only three or four people that work in the entire company. Do you think they can really afford to pay for an entire other employee to be there but not do anything? Like pay them and but they're not there? Of course not. They can't afford to. And so the left would say, well, Andrew, maternity leave requirements, we can only uh, we can put them together where they only apply to large companies in some states, and that's how they do it. So those small mom and pop businesses aren't put out of business if they hire a woman who becomes pregnant, to which I say, well, how does that align with your thought process on this? If you think it should be a requirement, maternity leave, what is your rationale for only requiring it of large companies? What, you're mad at them for being successful? Well, we just we just think they can afford it. That's why. So let's punish them for succeeding. I mean, you'd think maternity leave, if you're going to require it, if that's your thought process. Once again, I don't have the thought process of requiring it. But if you think you are somebody and you fall into that category, so you say, well, it should be required. But you also somehow think that women, some women don't deserve maternity leave because they work for the wrong place. That. That doesn't make any sense at all. So it's bad for the consumer. It's bad for the business. But most of all, it's bad for women, especially younger women. Let's say you're hiring for a CEO position at your company and you live in a state that has required maternity leave. You don't think that would weigh on your mind if you're interviewing people and you come across a woman who has like, I don't know, a two-year-old kid. So you're like, oh, they could be at that age where they have more children. I mean, you're hiring for a key position Let's take, for example, let's go to the extreme. Let's go to Canada. Canada has 35 weeks of maternity leave, almost eight months. And you're not allowed to fire a person, of course, for becoming pregnant. So for 35 weeks, you have to either don't have a CEO or find someone to temporarily fill the CEO position to run your company that, by the way, won't be in that position anymore in 35 weeks, roughly eight months. So for eight months, you either don't have a CEO or you have to find someone who knows they are only temporary. You don't think that's at the back of the mind of people when they're hiring hiring boards? You don't think they're paying attention to that? You don't think that plays into their decision on hiring? They would never say it out loud. They'd never utter it to another person. But of course, it's in there. And study after study proves this. It's not that they wouldn't normally hire an ambitious woman with children. I mean, the fact that a woman has children or is having children actually could be considered a plus for a company 
That's somebody who's looking for stability. They're thinking long-term. They appreciate benefits more than just the, the dollar amount they're being paid. So that keeps them attracted in. Exactly. I mean, they're, they're, they're thinking long-term. It's exactly the kind of behavior you want in leadership roles, stable, long-term thinking people. Now, the real issue here and what they should really be looking at is that the real best situation to raise a family in wouldn't be in a state that has required maternity leave for workers. It would be in a state that can provide you the kind of situation where you could raise a family on only one working parent's salary, mother and father that, that, that doesn't mean necessarily has to be the mother. It could be, uh, of course, the mother working or the father working. It doesn't really matter. But living in a state where you could raise a child on one salary would be obviously ideal. I would put that above mandatory maternity leave in the first place. But instead, the survey cared more about the fact that you live in a state that requires you to work as a family so much so that both parents had to be working so much so that it's required maternity leave more than they value a state that has such a low cost of living that you could make it on one salary, which that should be the ideal. That's the ideal situation. You want to raise a family, it doesn't matter which parent, but one parent should be staying home with the kids. That would generally be the ideal. And I don't think anybody should disagree with that. If you want to work, that's your choice. But living in a state, where you have a low cost of living, I think that would be way more important than whether or not the government has determined that every business has to offer maternity leave. Well, coming up after this, we'll be talking about a bill to make state the state school board elected. We'll be going over that after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Cooperider Show. Senate Bill 8 has been filed. What that would do is make the... Uh, Kentucky Board of Education, so at the state level, an elected body. How it works now, you've got 11 voting members that are selected by the governor, and uh, the norm for how the board has historically operated was to be half in, half Republican, half Democrat, half Republican, but Bashir took a huge departure from that and reappointed the board basically as soon as he got in, and famously, even the uh, liberal leader, uh, Herald leader, had to uh, comment on it. They had to write an article about how Bashir is refusing to fill the Republican voting member seats and had left them vacant for well over a year. The board, of course, then also has the power to go ahead and hire the commissioner of education as well. So the bill would go ahead and make the board now 14 voting member, so up it to 14, and it'd be elected by two per uh, Supreme Court district. So there's a, you know, there's seven Supreme Court districts that go on our state Supreme Court we vote on. And so they'd say there'd be two members per each district. And these are supposed to be as well partisan elections. So they would be marked as Democrat or Republican for the election. That is, you know, it's common locally, of course, uh, to elect your school board. So that makes some sense. But of course, those are typically nonpartisan elections. In this case, though, they would want to make them partisan. Now, I have some feelings about this. I think making that board, that school board elected is a fantastic idea. They, after all, oversee over half of our state's budget. 
over half of our state or around half our state's budget goes into the SEEK fund, goes into K through 12 education. Them overseeing it makes a lot of sense. So that way it really breaks down some of that control that the governor has over that. Because, you know, we talk about, they talk about uh, getting in check this out of control governor at all. But regardless of getting in check the out of control governor, returning power back to the people or at least dispersing power from the governor back out makes a lot of sense. Earlier, I think last week, I covered a bill that would extend the legislative session out so they could meet year round. And I mentioned how uh, I had some reservations because, of course, that could turn them into a full time legislature. But those who are for it say, well, look, we want a legislature that's able to keep our governor in check, that's able to keep the government in check as a whole. My point to that is, well, it's not that the gov it's not that the legislature needs to have more power to keep the governor in check the reason why the governor can run roughshod is because over time the legislature has given the governor more and more power i mentioned how you know the um agriculture commissioner used to be the agriculture commissioner uh, labor and statistics they were over all those categories but yet the labor cabinet is in the governor's office that should be moved back to the ag department and then uh, I mentioned the treasurer. You know, the, the uh, governor has control over the Re Department of Revenue as well as uh, has control over, it has its own budgetary office, its office of the budget, so on and so forth. That should be done away with, moved back to the treasurer, and then they would be in charge of overseeing that. And then moving now education out from control of the governor and moving that over to a board that's elected by the people, it, that is a way it makes a lot of sense. Because keep in mind, the Kentucky Department of Education didn't even really fully exist for like all of time, right? That's a creation, something that was created. And so therefore, dispersing out, not giving that governor more power makes a lot of sense. Because I don't care if they're a D, an R, an I, an L. I don't care what initial they put next to their name. No governor should have so much power. It should be dispersed out. And whether that's given back to the people, dispersed out over other elected officials, brought down more locally, whatever it may be, it needs to happen. And this is a step to making it happen. Now, I do have one big comment on this, not just one, but a big comment on this. These districts, if I was going to elect 14, what I would be doing is I would be cutting up those uh, Supreme Court districts. And I understand why they don't want to have to recreate another districting map and so on and so forth like they do for the state Supreme Court. But I would be splitting up those into two because the state Supreme Court district, I mean, you got to think it's seven, right? We have six congressional districts in Kentucky. So a state Supreme Court district is just what, what is it? It's, it's a hundred thousand less. So probably around 600,000 people, uh, would be, I guess the amount. Yeah. Right around 600,000 people would be in a Supreme court district. That is huge. That's bigger than the state Senate district. That's bigger than a house district. Um, that is a sizable amount of area. And so it would mean that this wouldn't be as much of a grassroots election. It would really come down to who has the money to get elected. And anytime elections become more and more expensive, well, you're giving more opportunities for well-funded special interests to be able to drive the way those elections land. And there's historically speaking, when it comes to your local school boards, while the people may care about election turnout, there's been on one side only one financial interest, and that is the teachers unions. 
because keep in mind when people make donations and they spend a lot of money into the quote unquote, uh, uh, governmental races, they're not really donating. They're making investments. That's what these big dollar donors are doing. They're making investments and they want to pay off for their investment. That's why so often we see legislators that don't serve us, but serve their donors because they need to pay off those donations. And so when you have a larger district, it requires more resources that will then require them to solicit more donors, which will allow special interests more likely to grab a hold of control of our Department of Education. Not that they don't have it now, of course. They're just doing that with the governor, right? Getting their special interests in there. And they're just an aspect. So at least it would only be people who have a special interest in education. But I'd be worried that we could start to see, uh, you know, like we see in our local school districts, teachers unions and others dumping large amounts of money into these races in order to win them. Now, a, a fight back against that could be that, well, Andrew, these are going to be partisan elections, Democrat, Republican, but I don't think that really means too much in this day and age. That's a big difference from the local elections, but I don't think that means too much. I mean, we have examples here in uh, Lexington, uh, Vanessa Grossel, who's running as a Republican against uh, Sherilyn Stevenson for the House, which, by the way, if you live in that district, uh, I would just not vote in that race come November. There's no primary challenger to Vanessa Grossel. And uh, so I would just not vote. That would be my decision. I would I would leave it blank because Vanessa Grossel was literally a Democrat uh, back in 2020, uh, geez, 2022. I recently ran into her, me and my wife did, out at a Republican function. And while I didn't have an interaction with her because I was too busy talking to actual Republicans, my wife did because she came up to my wife and tried to talk to her. And my, my wife is very spunky sometimes. She told her to kick rocks and, well, she didn't say kick rocks, but, you know, she told her to kick rocks. And she said, oh, why, why don't you like me? And she made it clear, I don't like people who are fake Republicans. I don't like people who put ours next to their name and they're incredibly liberal. Be who you're going to be. And so she said, no, 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 I'm Republican. I switched. And so my wife asked her, well, why'd you switch? And her response was, well, I switched to vote for Ryan Quarles. She didn't say, I switched because the Democrat Party has lost its mind. She didn't say, I disagree with what the Democrats have to say. She didn't say anything along the lines to indicate that she has had a shift since she was a Democrat. A Democrat, by the way, that gave to the most liberal members of our city council and donated to Pete Buttigieg when he was running for president. Definitely not a moderate Democrat. No, she didn't say, look, they've lost their mind. I disagree with him and I agree more with Republicans. No. That's not what she said. She said, oh, I just switched to vote for somebody. And then I stayed that way because I realized she didn't. She just said, I vote for somebody, but I'm adding on. She stayed that way because she realized she could run for office as a Republican against Sherilyn Stevenson would stand a better chance than challenging her in a primary, switching back to a Democrat. And so we're seeing this all over the place. We're seeing very liberal people with ours next to their names, running against individuals all across the state. I've gotten several messages about it just here recently, even going over, letting me know like, Hey, these people, <laughs> we're seeing a lot of Democrats running as Republicans suddenly. And so it being partisan doesn't tell me a whole lot. People switch over to a Republican, but then the, the, the school boards and everything else will start dumping money into them. And it's about, Hey, can we push back? So my only comment would be, I would like to have seen it 14 people elected over 14 different districts instead of two from seven districts creating giant 
big races uh, that it can be run by money. However, regardless, turning that into an elected position, uh, those elected positions certainly makes a whole lot of sense because they're paid a lot too. I mean, these, these commissioners are paid significant amounts of money as well. So it's not going to cost the taxpayer a whole lot. In fact, you could probably get away paying them less now because that's an elected position. But anyways, um, coming up after this, there's some KET videos. So for those of you who watched, I covered, uh, not yesterday, but day before yesterday, I believe I covered some conversations that were had on KET from house and Senate leadership. And, uh, we, we, we covered a few topics there. There's two more outtakes though. I wanted to go over with you one about uh, a Democrat absolutely flabbergasted about abortion. Uh, let me play that for you now. But what really bothers me is that it is, and, and I don't want to go down this path, but it is so ironic that the party that has always talked about less government is invading on the rights of individuals dealing with their individual problems or their individual situation in which they have put themselves in. I've never understood that. How can you say that you are for people to have the rights to make decisions on your own? Well, that was Representative Graham, minority leader in the House. And don't worry, Graham, I'll answer that question for you. But you're going to have to wait just a few minutes after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew Kubrater Show, your source for Kentucky politics, questions, concerns, issues. Feel free to email the show, info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. We'll be back here in a few minutes. I'll be answering Graham's question. We'll see you soon. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Before the break, I play for you Derek Graham questioning Republicans on abortion. Representative Graham, he's the minority leader in the House, the highest top Democrat in the House, which is like being the president of the knitting club at this point with the amount of political power you have. But he, he issued a, a false conversation or trying to somehow represent conservative viewpoints uh, from his quote unquote point of view. Let's let's take a listen to this. I'm going to break it down kind of as it goes, but let's listen to the short clip here again. But what really bothers me is that it is, and, and I don't want to go down this path, but it is so ironic. <laughs> what really bothers me is I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to like go down this path, but I'm kind of going to uh, go ahead and go down this path. You know, it, it's just so funny to me. What really bothers me, but I don't want to talk about it, but you know, I know we're going to talk about it. Right. Anyways, let's continue that the party that has always talked about less government is invading on the rights of individuals dealing with their individual problems or their individual situation in which they have put themselves in. I've never understood that. How can you say that you are for people to have the rights to make decisions on your own. So let me clear something up for you, Graham. Okay. Let me, let me clear something up for you. Okay. So smaller government means that we regulate less. All right. That means we regulate less free business. We regulate less of your everyday lives. Now, smaller government, nobody who's a conservative, small government guy uh, would sit there and tell you that they don't want the government to regulate murder. All right. And I think that's a key concept that these so-called intellectual politic and Democrats conveniently misrepresent and, and, and miss completely is that the viewpoint of 
conservatives. Is not that uh, uh, abortion is just a medical procedure. That's the Democrat thought process. The conservative thought process is it's murder. Abortion is murder. And so as long as you continue to try to demagogue and pretend it's somehow not, you'll you'll forever be issuing some of the dumbest remarks back. And this is this is just a response to Democrats as a whole. And this is why they struggle. They really do struggle so much with debate. That's why they shut down free speech and conversation because they don't know how to debate. They don't know how to have conversations about what's actually important to them and what's not actually important to them. They can't do it. And this is evidence number one. It's not just straw manning an argument. It's literally making an argument we never do. Nowhere do I ever hear Republicans say, you know what, we really should deregulate murder. That would be great. Let's go ahead and deregulate that. That's that's something he just doesn't understand, you know. And as, as long as Democrats continue to try to uh, uh, misrepresent that, as long as they continue to run and hide from the fact that the disagreement isn't over the size of government, the disagreement is over whether or not you should be allowed to murder unborn children and whether or not it's murder, because that's the real debate. That if Democrats really wanted to, quote unquote, make headway in the thought process on this, that would be the real debate. And I know uh, we had, quote unquote, Hadley's Law put out here recently, I believe offered up by Yates uh, to, to offer some exemptions on abortion. We'll be going over that bill probably next week because there's, there's a little more dig in there. But it, it's just, they just don't get it. They don't get it. They never will. I don't know if it's because they purposely uh, uh, want to sit around and think they have good arguments. Like, okay, so yesterday I talked about school choice and I brought up one of the arguments that they make is that it's unconstitutional. And so I made a post on my uh, my Twitter there the other day stating that, um, you know, nowhere else do we have the argument about public dollars shouldn't go to private companies, you know, roads, bridges, that type of construction. We never, ever, ever, Try to pretend that only private, only only government employees should be providing those services ever. And several Democrats commented, saying, "Well, Section whatever, whatever the Constitution would like a word, or it's unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional according to the state constitution. Ha ha ha! You're so stupid. It's unconstitutional." Literally in my show yesterday, I had to address that. I didn't even make that post yet when I'd made that show, but I had to address it. Because I'd already heard it because they're that stupid. Literally, we're talking about a bill to change the Constitution, propose a constitutional amendment, and their response is to say, well, that's unconstitutional. But that's just Democrat. They cannot debate. They can't. That's why free speech scares them so much. Let's hear what else we had to say. We had another thing on mental health. Certainly becomes interesting as House Bill 202 has been filed by Proctor. Uh, let's take a listen. The bill number of the School Safety and Resiliency Act by the late John Bam Carney and Senator Max Wise. Senate Bill 1 and House Bill 1. Thank you. Yeah. I knew you'd know. Uh, there there was a call for some mental health supports. It was a, a counselor for every 250 kids, and we know that that's, that's still, we're still lagging behind there. And maybe need more than that ratio, because that was five years ago. So first... Um, I want to deal with two parts. One, they're talking about lagging behind in ratio of mental health help compared to children. Uh, something to point out, it would go a really, really long way uh, if the legislature passed House Bill 20, uh, was it 203, not 202, 203, 
Yeah, 203. House Bill 203, which would allow mental health facilities to open up without having to ask permission from the state first on certificate of need purposes, not to go get licensed or certified or other things like that, but literally just to ask, Am I, I'm licensed, I'm certified, can I even open up a business? So that'd be the first thing. I'd, I'd support House Bill 203. The second thing is, listen to what she said there, is that five years ago, it was one per every 250 students, mental health help. But that was five years ago. So it should be even more now. Now, this isn't a, this isn't a, uh, um, you know, some sort of set number like, oh, we need a thousand. We've had population growth. We need more now. No, 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 no. This is a ratio. This is a per capita amount that they're trying to get to. Pointing out that over the last five years, that the mental health has gotten worse amongst our children. Mental health has gotten worse to where we need more than one mental health professional for every 250 students. And at no point during this entire thing does anybody stop to say why. No, they continue on as if government can somehow solve this. Government has done nothing but spend more and more and more of our money on this type of thing, and yet they get no results. It's because they're trying to solve a problem government can't do. In fact, government makes it worse. Because what creates mental health issues outside of, if it, you know, of course you have those genetic issues and yada, 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 and let, let's not go into the weeds. But what creates uh, depression or mental health issues or people struggling, it's a lack of hope. And that hope gets robbed from you a lot of times by government overreach. And what do I mean by that? I mean, when they destroy the family with their welfare systems, that leaves you less connected to your community, your family, that leaves you feeling more alone. When they destroy the church as the center of, of the place where you go get help from and say, no, no, come to Papa government. You're talking to a faceless person, or not faceless, but a, a nondescript person who doesn't actually care for you. See, the wonderful thing about when you're getting your welfare help or when you're feeling down or you had issues, financial issues or other issues, and you'd go to your church to seek them, you had somebody and you're receiving help from people who really cared. They'd keep you accountable, of course. They would sit there and make sure that you had the resources you needed, they would check up on you, not because they were being paid by daddy government to do it, but because they actually cared about you. And this was a volunteer effort for them. But now we have a bunch of government employees. You know, it's like, it's like, do you want a bunch of DMV workers to be in charge of whether or not you get taken care of? Or do you want to see people who actually care about what they're doing taking care of you. And that's what we got when we had churches handling the welfare, churches handling the place where you went to go get help. It created community center, community accountability, but at the same time, it provides you somebody who cared and would push you so you didn't end up in a hammock. So if you don't believe in Judeo-Christian values, you don't believe that there's a life after this, if you don't have family, if you don't have community, you have nothing. Yes, of course you're having mental health issues. You don't feel connected to anyone. You don't see the purpose of even being here then. Where are you finding your purpose from? The government? The government can never give you purpose. It can only steal it from you just like it steals everything else. Well, coming up after this, Bill's been filed to uh, on safe gun storage. We'll be digging into what a crock -a, crock a poopy that is after this short break. And welcome back, everybody, to the final segment of the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Your source for Kentucky politics on this wonderful Friday. 
As always, you want to reach out to the show, see past episodes, everything else, feel free to visit theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's theandrewshow.com. Senator Neal, the Democrat minority leader in the House, filed Senate Bill 56, an act relating to firearms. What this would do is it would uh, create a law as far as safe storage of firearms as well as uh, reporting firearms as stolen. And it would make the unsafe storage of firearms a Class A misdemeanor punishable by up to a year in prison and a $500 fine. Now, when I was up at Frankfurt and I was fighting on car, showing up to the hearing, making a stand against it, the moms demand action crazies that I think half of them probably aren't moms. Uh, one of them came over <laughs> and said, oh, let me talk to you. We're going to try to find some, quote unquote, common ground here. Um, and it was, it was pretty funny. She goes, no, no, no. <laughs> they pulled out their line. They said, she goes, we're not, we're not, a, we're not trying to seize anybody's guns. That's first what she's saying at the car thing. We're not trying to seize anybody's guns. We're not, we're not trying to do that. And I said, well, first off, um, I highly doubt that, which by the way, this woman ended up going on and commenting on my Twitter later. So I was able to see her profile within the first three posts was a post about wanting to seize AR-15. So she's a dirty, dirty, rotten liar. But what do you expect from a bunch of liberals that want to take away your right to defend yourself? They're going to be generally bad people. But also at the same time, uh, she claimed, oh, look, there's, there's, there's common ground here, like a safe storage bill. And so uh, Senator Neal filed this safe storage, storage bill. It's not very long. We're going to go through it, though, here real quick. Uh, the sections here. So first, they say, as used in this section, a safe storage depository means a safe or other secure container, which, when locked, is capable of being opened without the key combination or other unlocking mechanism and is capable of preventing an unauthorized person from obtaining access to and possession of its contents. A person who owns or is a custodian of firearm shall not store or otherwise leave the firearm out of his or her immediate possession or control without having first securely locked the firearm in appropriate safe storage depository or render it incapable of being fired by using the gun locking device appropriate to that weapon. A person who violates this section shall be guilty of a class A misdemeanor. And then it also says any owner or other person lawfully in possession of a firearm who suffers the loss or theft of the firearm or any person who sells ammunition who suffers a loss or theft of ammunition shall report the facts and the circumstances of the loss or theft to the appropriate law enforcement agency within 24 hours of the discovery of the lost or theft. The report required by paragraph A of this subsection shall contain, if known, the caliber, make, model, manufacturer's name, serial number, or any other distinguishing number identification marks on the firearm. The law enforcement agency shall enter the reported information into the National Crime Information Center database. Any person who fails to report a loss or theft as required by this section shall be guilty of a Class A misdemeanor. So let's break this down. There's a few things in here. So first, let's talk about what this, this secure uh, law says. So right off the bat, so stay, safe storage depository means a safe or other secure container, which when locked is incapable of being opened without the key combination 
or other unlocking mechanism and is capable of preventing an unauthorized person from obtaining access to and possession of its content. So right away, something that comes to mind is a car. <clears throat> so first, uh, as, as anybody knows, a, a firearm is only as useful as your ability to get to it. So somebody's breaking into your house, generally speaking, you don't have a bunch of time to hurry up, go over to your safe, assuming it's in your room, put in the combination, open it up, open up your safe, grab your gun and go out and get them necessarily. There's tons of different kind of locking mechanisms out there, fingerprint readers, quick deployable safe systems, um, you know, quick combination lock boxes, so on and so forth that, that are there. But my first thing is when it comes to the possession side of things. So let's, let's take enforcement out of this for a second because there's some real enforcement issues here. But here we go. So let's say you're somebody like me who carries a gun on them and you keep that gun in your car when you have to, I don't know, go into a bank. Well, I don't keep a safe in my car, nor would I. Why? Because I'm not trying to, uh, uh, with, if generally speaking, I'm not leaving a gun in my car all the time, but if I'm carrying a firearm and I pull up to a bank and I say, hey, look, I got to disarm before I go in here. So I take my gun off and I put it in my truck and I lock the doors to go into the bank. Well, now I'm unsure if that's illegal or not. So under this law, because it, it defines a safe st storage depository as a safe or other secure container. Is, is a car cab a container? Is that what, I mean, how big can the container be? Because if a car cab can be the container, well, couldn't a safe depository means a safe or other secure container which when locked is incapable of being opened without the key. So is my car an unsecure, is, is that a secure container? And if my car is a secure container, well then what about my house? Is that a secure container now too? Is there a limit to the size of the secure container? You can't go into my house without the key. So if I keep my guns in my house, is that now secure or not? No, I mean, I mean clearly they're gonna have to define the size of a secure container. At which point does a car become a secure container? Yes or no? I mean, think about that for a second. You're carrying a gun. You pull up to the bank. You take it off. You put it in your car. You are now committing a class A misdemeanor under this law, punishable by up to a year in prison. That's, that's one of the first major issues. The second issue here does, once again, with access, what does it mean to be on his or her immediate person or control? For an example, if I take my gun off and I put it next to my bedside at night, is that on or in my immediate control? I put it in the drawer next to me overnight, something like that. That's a choice people make. And it doesn't even say that this person has to have children in the house. You could literally live alone. You can live alone. So obviously, if you have children, maybe you don't want to leave your loaded gun right next to your bedside at night, right? That's, that's something you could be concerned about. But if you live alone or, you know, it's just you and your wife and you take your gun off and you put it next to you on the bedside uh, uh, table there as you go to sleep at night, under this law, you are now committing a class A misdemeanor. A person who lives alone in their home can't have loaded firearms throughout their house. Unless, of course, we consider a house to be a secure and locked container. I mean, they don't even, th this, this tells you, these people don't know the first thing about guns as they start to think about this. This isn't middle ground. 
You don't even have, you don't have a writer for cars. When you're pulling up to banks or things like that, you, you say a locked car, you don't have something for that. You don't have something for somebody who lives with only adults, not worried about children getting access, just them and their wife or, or wife and husband or just husband or just wife or just man living alone or woman living alone. You're thinking about that. You're a woman living alone. You're going to want to, most women I know that would live alone, I, hey, I'd, I'd suggest to them have a gun on you. You know, you're not probably going to be able to physically take somebody who jump, who breaks into your house, but have a gun. You know, Colt's the great equalizer, right? Oh, you can't, you can't legally without putting it in a safe. You're in panic. Somebody's breaking in. You live alone. You can't get to your gun. Is that taken into account at all? Absolutely not. And then let's go into the enforcement side of this. How are you going to know? If they kept it in a safe storage depository, what? Is it only if their gun gets stolen, you then, it, you then under this law, have to report it now? And then what? The police show up and they say, hey, did um, were you storing that gun properly? You knowing it's a year in prison, if you say no, are going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept it uh, locked up over there in that thing. I kept it locked in this room here. I mean, container. Okay. At my house. Here you go. At my house right? I have a gun safe, but I also have a room with a combination lock on it that my son doesn't have access to that I keep all my other guns and ammo because I have more guns than can fit in my one safe. Okay. I mean, you guys seen it. You see my video. I've got a, a gun rack behind me on the wall. That room has a combination lock to get into it. It stops my son from getting access to my firearms. It's safe storage in that way. It's a lockdown room. Some people have safe rooms, giant rooms with safes. Is that now illegal under this law? I have to go out and buy several thousand dollars worth of safes because a room now is in a locked container? Out of control and ridiculous. Well, hopefully I got your weekend started off right. You're feeling a little fired up. We'll see you back here on Monday. You're listening to the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Have a great weekend.